We're going to continue today in our Living with Margin stewardship series. Two weeks ago, we talked about the discipline of reserving a margin for compassion. Last week, we discussed what it means to reserve a margin for contentment. And today, we'll consider God's invitation to reserve a margin for faith. We've already begun to talk about that. Reality sets limits that no person can move. Now, not all of us grew up realizing this truth. I don't know what kind of children you were, but not all children realize that. But eventually, if we live long enough, it becomes simply a truism, just a bit of common sense. Even the visionaries and the dreamers and the people who push at the edges of what's considered possible will find a boundary that cannot be crossed. Reality sets limits that no person can move. Now, for some of us, the constraints of reality seem tighter than they are for others. Education, wealth, power, tenacity, ambition, or influence certainly expand the possibilities. Contrary-wise, poverty, vulnerability, laziness, irritability, disease, or bodily dysfunctions can restrict our options, sometimes severely. But for all of us, book-learned or street-smart, wealthy or poor, powerful or weak, influential or meek, self-disciplined or irritable. We live in a closed system. For all of us, there are boundaries through which we cannot break. That's our lived experience, and it's hard to argue with it. Taking the world as it is and taking us as we are, certain possibilities are within our grasp, and other possibilities will forever lie behind and beyond our attainment. And as true as all of that is in so many ways, for those of us who follow the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, who became flesh in the person of Jesus, we must not allow that truth to become all of our truth. Personally, I've always wanted to fly as the birds fly. Anybody else share that dream when you were a kid? No technology. Don't show me airplanes or anything like that or machinery. Don't give me a jet pack. I don't want any fuel to do it or exhaust fumes coming out of me. I don't want a special outfit that has wings so I can glide. I don't want to have a mandatory stopping time where eventually you have to come to the ground. I just wanted to take off at will by the power of my own choice and the body that I've been given. Of course, that lies outside of my grasp. It can only be a dream. I'm limited by my biology and by physics and by all of that. Now, I might be able to achieve a version of that through technology over time, but I would never achieve it in the way that I imagine it. And that is reality mercilessly imposing its restrictions on me. When I was a child, and I don't know if this happened to you, but many an adult told me that I could be whatever I wanted to be. But I found out as I matured, as I'm sure many of you have discovered, But those promises are a bit misleading. Now, I'm sure there are some things that I did not achieve that I might have achieved through proper discipline, effort, and perseverance. Who knows? Those are roads not taken. But I can say that in a few instances, there were things that I deeply wanted to achieve, that I worked night and day to accomplish, that I poured all my energy and effort into attaining, and I simply could not reach my goal. 
I'm confident you've experienced maybe one or two of those failed goals as well. It's easy to take those experiences and apply them universally. But the question we have to ask as Christians is, is everything limited? The way that material things are limited by the laws of physics or the way personal achievement is limited by talent or IQ or opportunity? And the answer for Christians is no. Some things are infinite, boundless, unlimited, And it's into those infinite, boundless, and unlimited realities that God calls us in Christ Jesus. In fact, I would argue that anything that God has offered to us, anything that God has asked of us, anything to which God has called us, is not only possible, but infinitely possible. I hope today I can convince you that this is true, but I realize that I have my work cut out for me, because many a Christian... Many a pastor, many a church, and many a denomination have assumed that everything, even the life of faith in God, has its limits. God's guidance of the First Testament, Judge Gideon, helps us to begin to appreciate how the promises of God both change the criteria by which we distinguish the possible from the impossible and expand the boundaries of what is reasonable. In Gideon's case, the Lord came to him, as we heard the kids explained it pretty well, through an angelic messenger and commanded him to lead an assault against the nation of Midian, which was a near neighbor of Israel. In Gideon's time, the Midianites had learned, and they learned expertly, how to live off the labor and the work of the Israelites. The Midianites would leave the Israelites to till the fields, sow the seed, tend the sprouts, and even harvest the crops. They left them completely alone. But once the harvest was taken in, Midian would raid the villages and steal the produce of the land. The book of Judges tells us that God allowed this to develop because Israel had departed from faithfulness to God in these days. However, in the days of Gideon, God sought to deliver his people from the oppression of the Midianites. When when Gideon finally agreed to obey God and gather an army, he assembled a force of 32,000 men. And that seems like a pretty decent number, at least to me. 32,000 seems seems decent. But Judges chapter 8, verse 10 later tells us that in the ensuing battle, 120,000 Midianite men died and 15,000 remained. So it sounds like Gideon was going up against an army of at least 135,000 men with those 32,000 soldiers. So 32,000 is no, it's it's a good group. But it's a lot less than 135,000. And yet, even though those were the odds going in, Judges chapter 7, verse 2 has said the following. And the Lord said to Gideon, The people who are with you are too many for me to hand Midian over to them. Otherwise, Israel would become boastful, saying, My own power has saved me. God was concerned that 32,000 versus 135,000 was too reasonable a number. If Israel won the battle, they could have taken credit for the victory with that many people. God wanted Gideon to attack Midian with less people. And that's a theme in the scriptures. The Marcellus Men's Book Club is presently reading a book called Shrink by Tim Suttle. And Subtle expresses the heart of the book in the following passage I wanted to share with you this morning. He writes, 
There are two powerful narratives at work in every ministry leader's imagination. The first is the American narrative, a story of mass production, capital growth, entertainment, and the virtue of everything bigger, better, higher, faster, and stronger. Americans don't like limits. We like graphs in which all the lines move up and to the right. This narrative forms the basis of American life and gives us a script for how we are to live our lives. Another powerful narrative is at work in the world at the same time. This narrative is called the gospel, and it was unleashed by the life, teaching, death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus Christ. When we follow the Jesus way, our job is to shrink. On this, the New Testament is unambiguous. The Jesus way is down. Jesus taught that the only way to find your life is to lose it for the sake of the gospel. He said the first must be last. If you try and keep your life, you will actually end up losing everything you were after in the first place. This teaching is so pervasive that if you attempt to remove it from the Gospels, there would be hardly any of Jesus' words left. If you attempt to remove it from his actions, then his entire life becomes unintelligible. The story of Gideon is an illustration of the conflict between these two narratives. If you want to win a military battle, the size the quality and the weaponry of the army matters, right? I mean, that's reasonable. It's so obvious it hardly needs to be said. And yet in the story of Gideon, God has suggested that reasonableness can be an obstacle to faith. In God's estimation, 32,000 versus 135,000 did not leave enough of a margin for faith. God wanted to leave no doubt in Israel's mind who had delivered them from the Midianites. So God required Gideon to whittle his army down to only 300 men. Now, as I was thinking about the story, my first response was, well, God, then why not simply defeat Midian yourself? Why not reduce the army down to zero? Why involve humans at all? And then it occurred to me, sitting back while somebody else fights for you, that's not faith at all. Faith requires a level of personal risk. The margin God wanted Gideon to leave for faith required two things. First, the task had to be impossible without God's help. And second, the Israelites had to be personally involved and personally at risk. To live with a margin for faith is to pursue something that God has promised, which by the normal restrictions of reality is impossible and to pursue that something at great personal risk. One might say that this is the very definition of faith. This is the story of faith throughout the scriptures. It's the story of Abraham leaving his father's home and household at 70 years of age. He was 70. Do you know he was 70? 70 years of age and moving into a strange land only because God said he would be with him. This is the story of young David walking into the Elah Valley to fight the nine-foot, seasoned Philistine warrior Goliath. This is the story of Jesus embracing death on a cross, in faith believing that by dying, he would conquer death and the power, spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms and rise to new life. And this is the story of Jesus' apostles who believed that by sacrificing their lives for the sharing of the gospel, the word of God would be shared with every nation on earth. These things make no sense. Faith requires three things. The promise of God, 
an impossible task and personal risk. To leave a margin for faith is to trust God enough to follow him into an impossible circumstance. To go all in knowing that if God does not do as he promised, we will fail in the endeavor and have to face the consequences of failure. Many aspects of the law that God gave to Israel at Mount Sinai were meant to help Israel to practice and to strengthen this kind of a life of faith. And perhaps no part of the covenant of Sinai was meant to increase this kind of faith more than the command to honor the Sabbath. We recall from our reading last week that Exodus chapter 20 verses 8 to 11 explained the Sabbath as follows. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. For six days you shall labor and do all your work. But the seventh day is a Sabbath of the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male slave or your female slave or your cattle or your resident who stays with you. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and everything that is in them, and he rested on the seventh day. For that reason the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Now we've already spoken in our series about the Sabbath as a protection for laborers against the oppression of their employers. And we've explored the Sabbath as a check on personal ambition and greediness. Additionally, the Sabbath is, a pra- is practice in leaving a margin for faith in our lives. We recall that Israel was primarily an agrarian society, so the work that they did each day was in the practice of farming and animal husbandry. Doing no wa- work on a farm, doing no work on a farm, even one day a week, is generally unwise. We might even call it unreasonable. Over the last several weeks, I've spoken with two different men who were raised on dairy farms, one here in New York and the other in Wisconsin, and both have assured me that cows must be milked every day, if for nothing else than for their own health and well-being. I've also been told by several farmers that crops must be gathered when they are ready to be gathered, irrespective of which day of the week that might be. In other words, full adherence to the Sabbath requirements of the Covenant of Sinai might be harder for farmers than for anybody else. And yet the Sabbath was a commandment given to a nation of farmers. They did nothing else. Perhaps this is why Israel never obeyed the Sabbath. Perhaps they saw these requirements as unreasonable or as unwise, or as stupid. As the Lord later said through the prophet Ezekiel in Ezekiel chapter 20, verses 11 to 13, God says, I gave them my statutes and informed them of my ordinances, which if a person follows them, then he will live by them. Also, I gave them my Sabbaths to be a sign between me and them so that they might know that I am the Lord who sanctifies them. But the house of Israel rebelled against me in the wilderness. They did not walk in my statutes and they rejected my ordinances, which if a person follows them, then he will live by them. And they greatly profaned my Sabbaths. Commanding farmers not to work at all one day per week seems completely irrational. Under the normal laws of nature and farming, that will not work. You are headed to disaster. 
Crops have to be gathered when they are ready. Sheep and goats have to be milked every day. If an animal is giving birth, nature knows nothing of avoiding a Sabbath. The work of a farm knows no schedule. It is what it is, and it needs doing when it needs doing. Israel knew this. What they lacked was not reason or intelligence or experience. What they lacked was faith. Israel did not want to live in such a way that they needed God. They were living within the boundaries of what they were capable of doing without Him. In general, faith is sustained belief. I've talked about this before. In general, faith is sustained belief that supports unending activity in a single direction until the goal is accomplished. That's faith generally. This is the type of faith that's required to move mountains. And it's what requ it's required to accomplish almost anything challenging in this world. But that kind of faith has limits. It's limited to the possible. Faith in God is different. Walking by faith in God charts a road that is impossible without God's involvement. Sabbath required Israel to leave a margin for faith in God. Sabbath required Israel to live outside the bounds of reason, outside the bounds of tradition, and outside the bounds of what experience had taught them. Sabbath required Israel to put their animals and their crops at risk by trusting God to ensure that their negligence, one day a week and one year in every seven, would not result in travesty. It would seem, by the testimony of the prophets, that Israel did not want to leave a margin for faith in God. They wanted to live within the boundaries of reasonableness, of what was possible, of what experience taught them. We've talked about this before. That's living by eating from the tree of knowledge. But faith in God does not function within the bounds of reasonableness. Faith in God only operates, you hear me, church? Faith in God only operates outside of what's attainable without Him outside of what's reasonable, and outside of what's possible. Does this then mean that if I have faith in God, I can do or accomplish absolutely anything? No. It does not mean that. Faith in God is not a power to be exercised in any way we choose. No matter how great our faith in God, we're not going to lift off, I'm not going to lift off from the earth, by my own choice and fly by the power of my own biology. That's not how it works. Faith in God is the willingness to walk, believing in a promise of God that is rightly ascribed to me into something that should, by all rational measures, be impossible to achieve. To leave a margin for faith in God, we must first know what promises God has made. And which of those promises are rightly to be applied to us today? The covenant of Sinai, for instance, was an agreement that God made with the ancient nation of Israel, a covenant that Israel broke over and over again, in which the Apostle Paul has said in Galatians chapter 3, verses 10 through 14, has become a curse. So not all the promises that God made to the ancient nation of Israel in the covenant of Sinai apply to us. Well, then which promises of God do apply to us? Hear me, church. All the promises God made to humanity in and through Jesus apply to us. So what has God promised us in Jesus? 
Jesus has proclaimed many promises of God to us, all of which will require some measure of faith in trusting him in the impossible. However, at the most basic level, the fundamental promise of the gospel of Jesus is that you do not have to be today who you were yesterday. You do not have to be today who you were yesterday. In John chapter 15, Jesus explained this promise to his disciples in terms of fruitfulness. Jesus taught the following. This is John 15, beginning in verse 1. I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that bears fruit, he prunes it so that it may bear more fruit. You are already clean because of the word which I've spoken to you. Remain in me, and I in you. Just as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself, but must remain in the vine, so neither can you unless you remain in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. The one who remains in me and I in him bears much fruit, for apart from me you can do nothing. If anyone does not remain in me, he's thrown away like a branch and dries up, and they gather them and throw them into the fire and they're burned. If you remain in me and my words remain in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. My Father is glorified by this, that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. Just as the Father has loved me, I also have loved you. Remain in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will remain in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and remain in his love. These things I've spoken to you so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be made full. Jesus has promised us that if we remain in him, we will bear much fruit. And what is this fruit? Is this leading other people to Jesus? Is it building and growing ministries? Is it volunteering at soup kitchens? Is it earning lots of awards or praise or money? Is the, are those the fruits that Jesus is speaking about? No. As the Apostle Paul explained later in Galatians 5, verses 22 to 26, But the fruit of the Spirit is love. Now let me stop there for just a moment and remind us of what we learned in our discussion last spring entitled God is Love. Remember, the Hebrew concept that underlies the word love in the Bible is, this is the quiz, chesed. And chesed does not refer to unconditional acceptance or affection or longing or desire as the English word love can. Chesed is defined by the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 13, 4 through 8, in the following way. Love is patient. Love is kind. It is not jealous. Love does not brag. It is not arrogant. It does not act disgracefully. It does not seek its own benefit. It's not provoked. It does not keep an account of a wrong suffered. It does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices with the truth. It keeps every confidence, it believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things, love never fails. So that's what we should understand the fruit of love to entail, those things. Galatians now continues. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, chesed, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. Now those who belong to Christ Jesus crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let's follow the Spirit as well. Let's not become boastful, challenging one another, envying one another. Jesus has promised us that if we remain in him, we will produce these fruits. The fruit of love, 
joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. He promised us this. But like not milking cows on the Sabbath for dairy farmers, that life looks to be impossible. And it is. And that's why it requires faith and personal involvement. In order to receive God's promise to defeat the Midianites, Gideon had to walk by faith into battle with 300 soldiers against 135,000. In order for Israel to receive God's blessing of abundance in their farming practices, they had to walk by faith by not working one day every week. In order for you and me to produce the fruit of the Spirit, we must walk by faith out of our justifications for our wrongs and into the belief that God can bring these impossible fruits even out of you, even out of me. The Wesleyan movement used to be characterized by what some theologians today call an optimism of grace. Whereas some traditions believe that we were condemned to sin in word, thought, and deed every day of our lives, the early Methodists dared to believe that if they walked by faith, that God would actually fulfill his promise to make them spiritually fruitful. They actually believed that. Can you believe it? Crazy people. Whereas some traditions believe that humans were restrained by their biology, by their circumstances, by their history, and by their nature. Fundamentally, the early Methodists dared to believe that our identity is not to be found in our biology, whether we are male or female, or in our ethnicity, whether we are Jews or Gentiles, or in our unique cultures, whether we are barbarians or Scythians, or in our social status, whether we are slaves or free. The early Methodists dared to believe that our identity was to be found in our faith in Jesus Christ alone and that we were limited only by the limits placed on us by Jesus himself and by our faith in him. The early Methodists believed that God both could and would complete in us what he promised. They dared to take Jesus at his word. They refused to back down until fruitfulness was seen in them. They were foolish enough to believe that 300 were enough against 135,000 if God was with them. And that not even the corruption of the flesh and the weakness of the human will could prevent them from becoming what God had promised to make them in Christ Jesus. Where are these people of faith today? Where are those who refuse to be defined by anything but Jesus and who refuse to give up their belief that God can and will fulfill his promise to set us free from the bondage of sin and death and to make us fruitful beings who walk in the footsteps of Jesus? Where are those who will not let past failure define their future, but only the call of Jesus on their lives? Where are those who, no matter their ambitions, no matter their wants, no matter their desires, will pursue nothing but the call of God on their lives to bear much fruit? Where are those who would sacrifice any earthly pleasure for the joy of knowing God and of becoming beings made in his image? Where are those who would deny any impulse, forsake any desire, embrace any suffering to pursue the kingdom of fruitfulness of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control? Who are they who would be mastered by nothing but the Spirit, identified by no title but Christian, governed by no law but the law of Christ, and satisfied by nothing but fruitfulness in Him?
Are there any Methodists left in the world? If there are, may God himself fulfill his promise to them to make them fruitful in him. This is God's work. And yet, just as Gideon and his 300 men, we must follow God into battle if we are to see his work in us. We must leave a margin for faith if we're to see God do miracles in and through us in our time. Where are those who believe that if God promises it, he will do it if we follow him in faith? May we find such people in our time. Amen. Amen.